0: Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings a human to data, and I'm your host, Ben Newton. In the world of software consulting and data analytics, the company Cognizant looms large. Our guest today, Karthik Krishnamurthy, is a senior vice president of Cognizant Digital Business, AI and Analytics, and Interactive and Intelligent Products. In his two-decade career at Cognizant, he has worked across many strategic areas, One of his focus areas today is analytical storytelling and the human connection, where he has collaborated with Christian Mautzberg, who was a guest on a previous episode. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome everybody to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm excited to have here with me today Karthik Krishnamurthy, who is the head of Global Markets for Cognizant. Thank you so much for uh, coming here and being with me. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And we're you. we're here in your uh, Sam Ramon office. It is beautiful outside. So we're just talking about what a great weather. How beautiful it is here. So thank you for letting us come to you in the office here. So Karthik, we, we love to start with just you know, like we were saying to humanize you and you know how you got to where you were. So just just tell us a little bit like how did you start in technology? How did you end up at Cognizant? You know, end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, just give us your story.
1: Yeah. Well. Thank you, Ben, for having me, first of all. At Cognizant, what I do now is I head up, like you said, global markets for our digital business, which effectively covers the work that we do in AI and analytics, product engineering and IoT, as well as what we refer to as interactive, which is agency services, digital marketing, and so on and so forth. But the journey till here has been quite the journey for me. I started off in India at a time when, I grew up in India, rather, at a time when India was just about globalizing. Mm-hmm. The force of globalization had come in, and I realized that I could do more with my remote control than just press the first two buttons on my remote control to get my <laughs> TV up and running. That the world actually had more than two TV channels. And that's, that's where part of that process was where I realized the power of presentation and storytelling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And frankly, even before I got into the data space, I, I was actually more of a storyteller than a data guy. Yeah. Uh, I used to write scripts for films. I uh, learned what it means to write a good narrative and how can you hold the audience's attention. Mm-hmm. And that sort of got into my DNA, so to speak. So when I got into the data space, which was more by force than design, <laughs> i got to be honest. In India, the, you know, parents play an extremely important role in what you end up doing in your life. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so when I went to my mom and told her, I want to go into hotel management. She wasn't very happy. <laughs> and every time that we walked into a restaurant, and and I have the greatest regards for people in this space, but she would look at the the waiter that was, say was serving us food and go, "So that's who you're going to become." Right? So that didn't necessarily <laughs> get me started on in that direction the right way. But you know, I, I went the engineering route, got into data, and my first ever piece of work was in the mainframe space, right? Those glorious Y2K days working on assembler core, beautiful CICS screens. So for me, when I then made the transition into the world of data and business intelligence, just to, to look at a BI app and, and see what you, we could do with reporting in BI was just was just heaven, right? When you come yeah. from that world. Yeah, yeah. But through that process, I also realized that technologists are extremely good producers, but we're not necessarily great storytellers. Yeah. And the magic of technology is in adoption. right? And I realized that if you can actually bring storytelling to this world from a narrative perspective, you, know, you could really start to make a difference. And a lot of the work that I've done has been sort of at that end of helping clients understand, what is the art of the possible? How do you actually drive outcomes with data and business intelligence and reporting and AI and big data? And- all of those beautiful, fancy words that we have in our space. And that's, that's sort of how I got into it, right? And when you really think about it, data and analytics is typically the last mile of technology. Yeah, that's true. Right, it's, it's that part which effectively connects all of technology to outcomes because you're supporting or enhancing decision making. Mm-hmm. And that's all about the human. Right. And to be able to dabble in that space and build a business around that and, and be able to make that connection back to the human, is is sort of what I've been doing for a really long time.
0: Yeah, I, I love the way you the way you talk about because particularly the analytical storytelling. Because that, that seems like that's that's you're absolutely right. That's what's so often missing from you know this industry is the ability to take these pieces of technology we built and really think about the human that's going to be using yeah. about it and how you connect to them, where they're at, and what they're doing. And it's so important, but it also seems like that's kind of key to succeeding now in this.
1: It clearly is. Right? It clearly is. Because if, if you sort of step back and look at what's happening to the world, every day the world is getting increasingly more dependent on technology. Right. And people in extremely powerful roles are making decisions on technology without really understanding what's the true ability or the true impact of technology. So your ability to tell that story, your ability to create that narrative in a way where you're actually able to drive human emotions becomes extremely critical. Mm-hmm. Right? And this was, there was this, well, this, this one moment that happened in my life that I can never forget. It keeps coming back to me every time. I was sitting with the CIO of a fairly large bank, and we're talking about big data and all of the promises in big data and everything. And he looked at me and said, You know what, KK? Big data at its core scares me. And I asked him, Why does it scare you? Why, why, should, why should it? I've heard a lot of things. I've heard people say, look, I don't get enough value out of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're using it right. I never had come somebody come to me and say, it scares me. <laughs> it scares them, yeah. And he said, look, as a CIO, my job is to bring, is to bring process and structure mm-hmm. to everything that we do. And this world feels like the Wild Wild West. <laughs> right? And for me to completely adopt this and, and be, be a champion for this, it's difficult for me. At my core. And I, that was a very important moment, right? Because at the end of the day, in our space, we are helping humans make decisions that at the end of the day impacts human emotions and outcomes, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're making a, helping a client or helping, helping somebody make a decision on how to model their sales force and what's the best way to reorient their sales force. Right. By based on, for example, based on the output that you create in your in your decision systems. Mm -hmm. And that could effectively mean that this one sales guy that is sitting somewhere has now got a completely different job to do. Right. Right. So there is a certain human emotion associated with that, which is why I think if you start with that and then you play it back into your technology and you make that connection, adoption goes up, usage goes up and you can start to deal with these human emotions of fear and worry and security and so on and so forth much better.
0: Hmm, oh, that's, uh, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. And I, I know, you know, like we were talking about before, I mean, one of the ways, the way that you and I got connected is I is had done the interview with Christian Maltzberg who wrote sense making, and, you know, he recommended you as somebody to talk to and, and you know, uh, particularly his view on bringing the human to data. That seems, I can see now why you guys had a connection there because it, I mean, he's all about, you know, bringing human context to data about how that's missing.
1: Yeah, he's so Christian's trying to, Christian's on this journey to make science sort of art. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to create art and science, when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you guys meet somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so we always sort of meet somewhere in the middle. We have some fairly healthy debates on these conversations, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, for, because, you know, one of the things when you you and I talked about, you know, one of the, I guess your passion is about using Things like artificial intelligence and this technology to solve real-world problems. I mean, so so talk to me about, you know, kind of where, where you're at with this now. Like, what are, the, what are the problems you're working on that are
1: in this whole space here about connecting the human to technology? Where, where's, where's your head at? So, and, and for us in data, right, it's sort of been this journey that we've had to take all the way down, now to AI. And, and and when I say that, I'm also conscious of the fact that this word gets bandied about so much right yeah. now, right? Every company that you talk to, they slap an AI term on it, and then their valuation goes up.
0: Yeah, like somebody said the other day, uh, one of my other guests said, is, you know, it's
1: basically half-time, it's just statistics. <laughs>
0: it's not actually AI.
1: Well, somebody told me, AI is anything you'd want it to be, and I can sell it to you for a couple of million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right, right, right,
1: right, for 200x markup. <laughs> so a lot of the time that I spend is in helping people understand what's the reality. Mm-hmm. And what's the most practical and applied way of getting to value in this space? Mm-hmm. And this is not a journey that just started now. You know, data has always been one of these things that as it came more and more into the spotlight, we've had to deal with helping clients sort of work through the hype around it, right? Mm-hmm. And I always joke with, with my friends, right? There's Four of the most abused words in technology belong in our space, right? It's big data, analytics artificial intelligence and data science, right? (laughs) That's true. So so almost all the time, we help our clients sort of land the plane, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the way that we go about working, at least from my perspective, is I start with helping our clients understand what the problem is and why the problems occurring, Mm -hmm. right? And when you start to have that conversation, the opportunity completely opens up. I was in a conversation with someone that was where we had the chance to work with them on you know, what you would call a customer 360 problem, mm-hmm. right? really trying to understand 360 degree, getting a 360 degree view of the customer, and being able to do some fairly deep analytics on their customers, so to speak. And they, they were trying to launch all of these multiple projects around it. And my question back to them was, do you understand your customer problem? What is your customer problem? And why is it that your customers are reacting the way that they are? Mm-hmm. Now, we, we ended up doing a workshop, a you know, a sense-making workshop around it. Mm-hmm. Christian and I actually went for that meeting. The CEO of this company was in the meeting. Right up till then, we, you know the communication that had come to us was, look, we know what's happening with the customer. We do a ton of service. You know, we've got a sense of that. Let's, let's just build these systems. Let's just build these platforms. Yeah. And we sit in the meeting with the CEO. And this is the CEO of a $25 billion company. And he looks at me and goes, you know what? I, I don't think we have any freaking clue what our customers want because the last five products that we've launched have all failed. Oh, that's sobering. Okay. And that was just this moment of reality in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's, it takes a lot of courage to have that sort of a conversation and to start there and then to, and then to map all of the insights that you can garner around the human back to the technology at some level and be able to do that effectively enough and bring that into the technology so that the technology becomes more viable and more aligned, right? And that's, that's, that's sort of what analytical storytelling, that's where we start. We start with understanding the problem. And to the second piece, now then you start to talk about storytelling. And there you need to create a narrative of decisions. You need to create a narrative of decisions that starts with the first decision that needs to be made right up to the nth decision that needs to be made for a particular process flow. Mm-hmm. right? So if you're trying to make a decision on, let's say, which products do you have to launch in the market, and you, and you have to build a decision-making platform for that, the support platform for that, there is a set of decision points in that process flow for the decision maker. Understanding what all of that becomes critical, and also, what are the emotions that drive that decision-making process becomes extremely critical. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand that, right? So that becomes sort of the second step. And within that, you got to tell the story. So that was our biggest challenge, right? How do you get technologists to tell stories? Hmm. And one way to do that is to find storytellers and then try and latch them on to technologists. In many cases, we deal with that. I think I came across this, Jeff Bezos refers to this in the Everything Store. He talks about the problem of the narrative fallacy. Hmm. And which is pretty fascinating, right? The narrative fallacy is one where you oversimplify an extremely complex thing. Oh, right. And, and in the process of trying to tell the story, you, you lose the essence of what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. So part of the storytelling process has to be that you, don't, you avoid the narrative fallacy problem. And you're still able to stitch the full storytelling model. So we started off, for example, one of the things that I told my team was, look, have you guys ever gone through a screenplay writing workshop? Right? Probably not many hands went up for that. No. So we had our guys go through screenplay writing workshops just to learn how to tell a story. Hmm. What are those points that you actually catch human attention? Every time that you catch human attention, there is a chance that you're influencing decision-making. So that's, that's sort of the third step to it, right? And then the fourth step becomes the actual technology itself, which is you know, tons of visualization tools out there, Graphical interfaces that you could use and that, and then you sort of blend it in there. So that's that's and That approach becomes extremely critical.
0: Well, you, you know the way the way you're talking about it Karthi it feels like you're because I think when I first heard you say to- storytelling I was thinking more like the technological story the b- Storytelling, but you're really sounds like you're really saying you're telling a human story absolutely it's just you're
1: doing it with You're doing it in the context of technology, but it's still just a very human story. Absolutely You have to understand what, what are the points of satisfaction? What are the points of dissatisfaction? When do you start to influence decision making? At what point of the human journey do you start to influence decision making? And then how can you then relay your set of insights to map back to that process? Because mm-hmm. there is a really good chance that you could have these 10 or 15 really pretty looking dashboards. Mm-hmm. And the most important content that you're serving up is maybe the eighth or the ninth dashboard. But if you haven't understood the human that's making the decision, he's already made his decision on the third or the fourth dashboard. Mm. He's only looking for data to ratify the decision he's already made. <laughs> so that's the, that's the fallacy that exists in our, in our environment. right? And that's where I think the biggest gap exists between people that produce reports and, and intelligence and people that actually consume it and translate it to action.
0: I know that's 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 interesting because we we actually had an interview with another guy, Alistair Kroll I don't know if you ever heard of him. Did lean analytics
1: get lean? Yeah yeah.
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. And he was one of the things he said was, at different stages of a company, you have like the one thing that you have to measure.
1: Hmm.
0: And it seems like that's that's part of it too because you can be swimming in data. And part of the part of the thing here is not to overcomplicate the narrative. You know, it it's is. like it was like what's the thread? What's the thread through this narrative? You need to make sure you carry because if you just just overload with data, then you know people will end up. Focusing on the one thing they care about, right?
1: And still, how do you avoid the narrative fallacy problem? Yeah. That's the key. I mean, the truth is, let's face it, right? We hold our machines and technology to a higher standard than ourselves. Yeah. That's true. There are a ton of decisions that we make that we get wrong. But then when the technology makes a misdiagnosis or gets something 98%, right? We still worry about the 2% problem. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point in time, I'm sure if AI gets to where it is, the technology is going to turn back and ask us, why are you holding me to a higher standard than yourself? But let's assume that doesn't happen. But that's the truth. And that's why we have to build our technologies closer to this, this aspect of human emotions and how you're actually driving decision making.
0: So when you're, when you're working through these kind of things and, and dealing with your, your clients, what are the biggest kind of challenges you're facing? Because I guess one of those is, is actually being able to it's a communication storytelling thing. Is that, is that, what what are the kind of challenges are you
1: running into in you know, translating that data and analytics into decisions? Getting people to face their failures, I think, is the first biggest issue. And that's what I talked about with this example, right? That to me, I think, is the first biggest problem. It's a human issue. We don't like to face our failures mm-hmm. and to know where those failures are I think is the most important thing because those, those points are where you need to make your most important decisions and that's where you need to target your biggest impact from a data and, a, and an intelligence standpoint. That to me is number one. Number two is the ability to then tell that story, which is having the right sort of people that can translate all of the... Information that flows through the platforms and the systems that we create to valuable insights that can be tied back to decisions, right? So, wh- how does this, how do these set of information points that we create map back to the decision making process and the various points of insight, right? So, having that ability to be able to do that, that's sort of the, the second biggest challenge, right? The third challenge that I would say, especially in our space where the art of the possible is is frankly as sort of, and I'm over-exaggerating here to make a point, but it's frankly as large as the universe itself in terms of what you yeah. could actually do, being able to zone in on what makes the most sense from a speed and a time-to-market standpoint is extremely critical. So that's, that's sort of the third big challenge, right? Very often, we always have this, this ever-going tussle between speed and craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. you could take a lot of time trying to get something right. right. But then there is a certain degree of time to market and speed that's more relevant in today's world than it is anywhere else. Yeah. So as a lot of these ideas and these ideation points start to get translated to implementation, and as you go through that journey, you very often find yourself in the speed versus craftsmanship conversation. And being able to sieve through that and still get to where we need to, I think, is, is sort of a really important macro challenge, if you will, yeah. right? So these would be three that sort of come to my mind, right? And, and then there's obviously there's technology, <laughs> <laughs> <That's> easy, <right? laughs> the world of technology and what we do. Well, right?
0: well, one question, too, on that, too. I mean, do you—because, I mean, I've heard it also described in one one way that there's a, there's a tendency to want to get it perfect, thinking that you actually could get it perfect, whereas if— you you're taking a product to market or you're trying to build a model whatever it is you, you actually have to see how it behaves in the real world with real people with real data and so by some sense if you take too
1: long you're not actually getting the benefit of that feedback loop yep you're not that is very true that is very true and i think the more important thing here is relevance and appropriateness right so there are there are certain types of users and certain types of consumers where getting it absolutely right is extremely critical if you're working with the CFO's organization, and what you're doing is you're doing work around helping them understand their financials so that they can report to the street. You want to be absolutely correct about yeah. what you do. On the other hand, if you're helping the head of sales sort of get a broad indication of product success and, and start to think about product strategies in new markets, you don't need to be absolutely correct. What you need to do is you need to be directionally Correct. Mm. And in many cases, that's where the, the speed versus craftsmanship conversation becomes extremely critical.
0: Well, that, that does make sense. Well, you know, one thing is through all of this, and I and think particularly going back to the, the sense-making connection, I mean, one part here is that one of the reasons why it's so important to have human context, right, is to avoid bias and avoid, like, ignoring the human complexity, which is, you know, what you need to have success in the market, but also to avoid making failures based on you know bias right so i mean particularly where where you're where you're coming from and you're dealing with these clients and you're dealing with this yourself how do you address and avoid bias in this whole process right because if those people that you're choosing to be storytellers are going to insert their own humanity into their storytelling so how do you avoid introducing and addressing biases that you're introducing into that process or how does does that make sense
1: it does and i i think this first this question of why should we remove bias? I think that's an important question that mm-hmm. we should talk about. Yeah. We all sort of think about bias as a bad thing, and in many cases it is. But also, when you look at the world of data and what we've done in data, we've always looked for biases. We've always looked for patterns, and patterns that exhibited mm. themselves. So there is a certain type of pattern-based biasing that, that at some level is unavoidable in my mind, right? So that's, that's inherent yeah. in the system. To the second point, I don't think anybody's found a real answer yet. But the way that we think about biases is to actually use technology to solve technology at some level. You could today use algorithms to try, algorithms that self-detect and self-report, right? You could have algorithms that monitors algorithms, right? So you could have algorithms specifically designed to try and capture biases in the code, biases in the algorithms around race or ethnicity or, you know, marital status or gender or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So as the, the bias conversation continues to move forward, I think it's important for us to understand what part of this is pattern-based biasing that, that is inherent in the system and that is unavoidable. And that's just the power of patterns and repeatability more than anything else. And then what's, what are those biases which are human in, introduced which can actually be detected through algorithms? And you can create algorithms to do that. You can have algorithms inspecting algorithms. You know, there are people that have coined terms for it, right? There's they have heard terms like responsible AI, explainable AI, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. But all of that is about trying to detect biases within algorithms and decision making.
0: Well, that, that seems to that point exactly one of the things that I've, I've definitely heard Push back on with artificial intelligence is the side that can't explain its own decisions because you know you, you get a sense that there are, technology companies and you know in our in our space you know in general in the software space that are building algorithms which then they can't actually explain how the algorithm came up with the conclusion, and as those those become like you you said early on technology is such an important part of our life now that so many aspects of our life are things are actually being influenced by you know, machine learning, AI-driven decision-making, you know, if, it can't actually, if you can't actually see how the algorithm got to where it is, where do you even find a bias
1: at that point, right? Because you don't even know how it got to where it is. Yeah, no, it is a real problem, right? Especially as you get, deep, as you get deeper and deeper into artificial intelligence, especially around evolutionary programming and, and deep learning and so on and so forth, you could sort of lose yourself in that quagmire mm-hmm. of that process. But to me, I think when there, there is a certain balance that we will have to reach, and that balance I think will be achieved when we decide, as a group, where do we want to place machines in our world? Mm-hmm. What is the societal position we give to machines? is a very important question to, have to be debated. Do we view machines as, as a set of things that that are responsible to make our lives better? They are gadgets? They are instruments? Or do we start to elevate the human-machine conversation to one where we consider machines as extended versions of ourselves? Mm. And that conversation, I think, is an important conversation to have, because that will then determine what sort of biases are we actually going to be okay with. There is a certain bias that the three of us sitting around this room will automatically have. Right. right? And we would accept those biases. Right? If there is a certain type of food that you and I don't like, a certain food content that's sitting in our food, we think of that food as bad, even before we consume it. Yeah, That's a bias. That's like definitely the may... way my kids are. <laughs> exactly. That's If, way if I, I, I cut things
0: up, I've ruined the
1: food. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the thing. right? So if a machine does the same thing, if a machine goes down that path and gives you an output and tells you, look, this looks like this garlic in this food, you're not going to like this food. Hmm. It may be okay for me to say it, but why is it not okay for a machine to say that? Yeah, it's true. So, so, so that's why, in my mind, I think the, the the debate and the conversation around what's that societal position that we want to accord to machines, I think is an important conversation. Yeah. That, to me, will then provide a certain sense of tolerance around the biases that we are willing to allow machines to have. And then let's have the conversation about the biases that we worry about. And that, to me, I think is is, is a more manageable problem. Then you're, you're basically... Descoping the problem at some level.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have you, you ever read Isaac Asimov? I used to, yep. Yeah, I, 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 I read a lot when I was a, was a kid. Do you ever read the Foundation series? I haven't read the Foundation series. It's, the, the reason why I bring it up, and it's, it's come up a couple of times, is when Asimov wrote the Foundation series, like part of the thing you realize at the end is that there was actually a split in society.
1: Yeah.
0: Between the society that ended up spreading you know, to the galaxy was one where AI was only assistive. Right. and it was it was meant to assist you in like driving a ship yep. or something like that. And there was another part of the society that where the robots actually became, more independent, but they also became slaves. Right, right, right. And so, it, it's, you, know, you, can kind of, you can see it clearly where Isaac Asimov <laughs> ended up on this very question, right? But, but he was basically making the point that, like, then you see the ones where they became more cognizant, they became slaves, and then these right. humans kind of live all by themselves, surrounded by slave robots. So, clearly not a new question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this could, I mean, if AI doesn't work, this would be, what, effectively the third winter of AI? So, we've already had two, yeah. dating back to the 50s. How do you think about that? You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we we always like to think
0: we're we, our problems are all new, right? We, <laughs> well, well, I guess you know, going from from here, where where are you going for from here? What are the where are the new big challenges, Karthi, that you're looking to you know dig your teeth into in these next next few months, years?
1: Well, I think there's like I said, I think the the opportunity to actually do work that matters to this world is significant. Mm-hmm. You know, working with the United Nations on poverty related problems and creating more insights into something like that. Working with states and governments on helping them figure out answers to human issues. Mm. The possibilities of technology is endless, right? While at the same time, I also think, and, and that's, that's, that's sort of where you know, I spend a lot of my time and I hope to spend a lot of my time working with our clients. At the same time, I think there is, there is a certain degree of regulation and control that needs to be put on technology, but done in a way where it actually assists the development of technology, as opposed to curbing it. Right. And I think there's there's work to be done there as well. And those are all really interesting conversations for me, right? And to me, at its core, is the focus on the human. Mm. And if we don't realize that to be successful in data, you need to be human first. You know, all of these things will not happen, right? So as as you think about human issues, right working, for example, with the government to help understand and predict flood situations by deploying effective artificial intelligence and, and predicting water level increases. That could save lives. Right. That's the sort of work that that sort of really gets me going, right? Mm. And to be able to have that sort of an outcome. And it's possible today with the volume of data that's present and with the technology that's in your hands. Right? I had an opportunity just a couple of weeks back to to go down to the, the finals of the, the Hyperloop SpaceX competition. Oh, really? Yeah, because Cognizant was the prime sponsor for one of the universities, the University of Delft, that made it to the finals. You know, they were from about 400 universities globally. We came in number two. Wow! And just to go there and see the possibilities of what, what these kids are creating, right? Just this, this, just this notion that someday you could go from San Francisco to Los Angeles in 30 minutes. Right? And come back and, you know, that basically redefines the concept of interconnected communities and what you could do, right? That's true. So that's why I think the possibilities are endless. If we can put the focus back on the human and solve the human problems around it, I think we can advance the the push of technology and data and intelligence, which is all embedded in there.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this has been a great conversation, Karthik, and I really appreciate your time, and I wish you all the luck in, in solving those big
1: problems. I think it's, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to keep in touch to learn we more should. about what you're working on. And one of these days, we'll, get, we'll figure out how, what's a better way to present rather than use projectors, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the projector problem is something that nobody seems to Okay, so, I'll so sign up for that one. I, was, <laughs> I remember
0: when we used to write with markers on those projector things. So, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I
1: appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to SumoLogic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to MastersOfData.com and subscribe and spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.